So we've proven to ourselves that we can change. And that's very significant because culture and the ways of working are all about being open to change. And that's what I think the big difference is. I think we've shown ourselves that we can do things differently. What else could I change? I think there's a sort of feeling, a collective feeling now, which is I've got to do something a bit more with my life. I'm Todd Harrington, and you're listening to the Gray Matters Podcast. Along with my co-host, Tony Hoyland, each episode explores a special guest's lifelong passion. There'll be a bit of nostalgia, but mostly it's our guest's personal story of how they discovered their passion and how it evolved over the years. Welcome to the Gray Matters Podcast. Our guest today is Alistair Creamer. He's an expert in cultural transformation and the founding partner of Creamer Milliken, helping clients build cultures that drive engagement, commitment, and most importantly, performance for their organization. He's been doing this for over 20 years. He's an inspiring advocate of change, working with companies and organizations large and small, with leaders and leadership teams across the world, from Thailand to California. He's really a true artist, through and through. He's a musician, a painter, a writer. And most recently, he spends much of his leisure time pursuing his passion for gardening. He always brings a fresh perspective to any conversation, and he's motivated by the belief that everybody is creative and empowers people to embrace their personal purpose to release change and energy in their organization. Without further ado, Alistair Creamer. Hey, Alistair. Hello there. Kind of before we get into your culture of the, the business, and, and I'll tell the listeners, I work with uh, Alistair, and uh, and we have a good time together. He's a brilliant uh, um, uh, culture phenomenon in his own right. Um, but I, I want to first talk about your background. Uh-huh. I want to go back. We like to talk in, in the great matters about people's, you know, the journey and the passion. It's not just all about what they're yeah. doing now. And you, uh, you're, you have in common with Tony, the passion for music. And can you go back a bit and tell us where it all started? You didn't wake up one morning as a, 19 and 20 something year old, I'm going to get into culture. Um, so what, how did it all start? And then we'll get into well, what you're doing I, now. I will take you back to when I was five, I think, because someone in my tiny little school at that point said to my parents one day, you should know that this kid can sing. And he's singing his heart out every morning at school assembly or whatever it was. Wow. My father was a doctor and my mother was a nurse. So it was complete surprise. And then I went for what's in in this country called a voice trial at one of the big cathedrals, Canterbury Cathedral, in fact. Oh, wow. And to their complete shock, I got in. And and so I was at a choir school singing in Canterbury Cathedral every day from the age of eight. And then I picked up the violin and I picked up the piano and my whole education just became music. And... Uh, I remember my dad saying to me, I must have been 13, 14, he said a very generous thing. He said, look, we know your life's all music and it's great, but, you know, there might come a time in life when it's not music and that's also okay. Uh, But, you know, you've just got to do what you love. 
And I said, it's all right, Dad. It's music all the way. <laughs> and then fast forward, I go to college, university, Durham University, and read music there. And I graduate age 21. And honestly, it sounds very dramatic. It wasn't dramatic, but this is what happened. I put those instruments away, and I haven't touched them for 41 years. Wow. That's... <laughs> Do, do you dare reveal why? Well, I, I I think this is one of my really interesting insights about life, which is I, d I don't think there was so much a why as what happened when I did that. And what happened was I just discovered all the other art forms out there. I just threw myself into acting, amateur dramatics, and uh, doing some a bit of direction. And then I got into painting and I still paint a lot. I write a great deal, just journaling and so on. But I write ceramics, carpentry. You yeah, I made chair. a chair. You built a chair. Wow. <laughs> You've yeah, seen yeah. the chair. I see, um, I see I the chair. I cook, and I've cooked in a Michelin-starred restaurant, and I'm now a gardener. And what what I think, it's not so much a why, what I discovered through all this, which I'm still discovering, is that we all have a, a, a natural way in which we express ourselves. And for me, it wasn't music, even though that was my whole education. I think what I learned through that was it's not quite the right art form or way to express yourself, Alistair. And I am much happier. Uh, you know, if you said, will you cook me a meal? Will you paint? Will you come and do my garden? I'll go, yes. If you said, go on, knock out happy birthday on the piano for Tony, I'll go, <laughs> I'm out of here. Wow. I, yeah. I will not pick up the violin and play to you. And I think there's something about, look, you know, you, uh, I've studied it for whatever it was, 15 plus years, and I still don't think I'm very good. Hey. So I'm, I'm not going to kind of go into that. But you must be one of the few people, because to me, music like, that you completely stop because the, the, what it does to your body and the beauty it brings to your body, it just, it's amazing. If I could do that, I would never drop, stop. So it's interesting that you dropped it for but good. Todd, right. what I've learned from that is that, you know, I'm not a musician, but I am musical. So I love music. I love going to all kinds okay. of music. So that's fine. Right. But the other thing that I've really taken with me now into my working life is this this thing around listening. So anyone who I think has been in a school band, a rock band, a dance group, a gospel choir, doesn't really matter. You've had to listen. And you've had to be able to listen quite well to keep in time, keep in rhythm, keep with the rest of the troupe. And I urge anyone... Uh, who has been through education, if they've had any experience like this, put it on your resume. Because it will tell people like me, ah, this person's got a head start in the game of listening. And listening, it, it's not a game. Uh, it's a deadly serious thing. But of course, it's the great skill. Yeah. No one is ever taught, really. Mm, that's very good. Oh, exactly. Boy, we need it so yeah. much. Mm -hmm. I so love that's what dad's... it's left me with. That's the legacy. I love your dad's advice, though, but, you know, do what you love. And if it changes, you know, go do that. That's really very profound. That's amazing. It it was, and of course, at such a generous act, because he was a doctor all his life. But from age 10, he wanted to be a doctor. He became a doctor. He then became one of the most senior doctors in London, physician to the royal family, all this kind of stuff. 
And so he was reaching the top of his tree when he when he gave me that advice and how generous because mm-hmm. uh, they'd invested a lot in me going to school and I've got scholarships and and they continued to invest in me. But it's that generosity of going, we've done that, but don't worry about it. You will take something from it wherever you choose to go. Um, and I did. You actually were the head of, while you're still in music, you ran, what did you run again? I'm sorry. I ran a number of different things. Yeah. I, it, what I quickly figured when I left university and sort of quietly put the instruments away, it wasn't sort of slamming them in, saying, I'm never touching them again. <laughs> I, yeah, <Get> away. <laughs> enough. I, I just made a quick little flip and thought, I don't want to perform, but may, I still want to be involved in music. So I ran... Yeah. Um, well, I, I started at the BBC in very lowly jobs, and then I was part of the Albra Festival, amazing contemporary music, classical music festival in the UK. And then in London, there were some concert halls, and I ran those, Blackheath Halls, for four years. And then I made a big switch. So from running arts organisations, I then moved uh, into... Sainsbury's. Now, Sainsbury's is one of the big supermarket chains in the UK. It's a bit like Walmart. And uh-huh. they had a, a family, you know, Lord Sainsbury was the chair, and I worked to him as his first arts sponsorship manager. So Sainsbury's gave a lot of money to good causes, including the arts. And he needed someone to manage that whole program for him. And I was um the first person through the door um and that was me stepping into big business and understanding how big business operated the language of business but i had come from the creative and cultural worlds and i remember you know in my early months walking around these big supermarkets because i'd often have to go on a tour with lord sainsbury or something like that and it was like theater if you've just imagined it, you walk into these big spaces. There's a front of stage, which is the whole supermarket. There's behind. There's the backstage, which is behind the wings where they keep all the storage. Every supermarket that I know always moves things around. They change things. The eggs are there one week. They're in a different aisle the next week just to move you around. And we, that was at a time in the early 90s where custom service in the UK, which we're not renowned for, I'll say, began people began to go, uh, hang on a minute, we 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 could do a bit better here. And and we uh, I began to see how people were picking up their act and going, This is a show. You know, we're on stage here. And that for me was a little kind of moment in which I went interesting, there are real crossovers here between business and what I think of as the creative industries. Wow. Never thought that in a supermarket. That's interesting. And then, then from there you moved on to... So uh, then I... I it, it's interesting because I often talk to younger people and say, look, my career has been a little like yours is going to be because as we say to young people these days, you're going to be flitting from job to job to job. Yeah, yeah. And and I've probably done about 12 to 15 jobs in my career. Mm-hmm. So I had, mm-hmm. after Sainsbury's, I had a couple of short jobs. I was dean of faculty at a, at a university called the London College of Music and Media. And then wow. I ran a theatre company uh, for able-bodied and disabled kids called Chicken Shed Theatre Company. 
And then I had a disastrous four or five months at a, a, a visitor attraction, really. They headhunted me called the Earth Centre in, in the Midlands uh, of England, in the middle of England. And it just went horribly wrong. It opened and... What are you doing, tours well, or no, something? Well, no, I was the managing director of, of this. Oh, I had to frame okay. the programme and sort of in charge of the marketing. And, and there were so many fingers in so many pies. And it, within months, it it closed. I mean, it'd taken sort of ten years to build, and it was. <laughs> I mean, it was absolutely. That's it depressing. Was, That's and so I, and I, tell you, I walked away from that, going because now <laughs> I can laugh and look back. And at the at that time, it was like the first kind of thing that had really gone wrong. <laughs> and I thought, oh man, what have I done? Um, you know, will I ever pick myself up from this? So. And, uh, you know, in all my coaching and all this kind of stuff with people now, I always talk about, you know, let's have a look at some challenges. Let's have a look at things that have gone wrong. Because that's where uh-huh. you learn most about yourself. You learn your resilience, right. your determination, your stamina, your get up and go. Uh-huh. Your, you know, are you really positive or are you just kind of putting on a brave face? And and that was an amazing moment because on the board of the Earth Center was this amazing man called James Hill who was a senior director at Unilever. And when they, you know, we parted ways, he said, I think you've got to come back down to London and I think we've got to find you a job at Unilever. I mean, it was as simple as that. And and I've had a number That's of these awesome. moments in life. Um, I mean, my, like my first ever job for the BBC was a porter. You know, yeah. someone who carries the musical instruments for the orchestra (laughs) onto stage for the concerts every night and I had to dress up in my DJ and all this kind of stuff and and it was someone who just said look I've got this young gentleman in my office I think he could be good so someone's given me a little break and I've had these moments throughout my life and and I've reflected a lot on that just going am I just lucky or and I think I am and I think also you put you make your own luck I, th- I think you, you, you're, you know, some people are just better at being in the right place at the right time with your antenna open and you lean in. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So at, at Unilever, you spent time there. Then fast forward, you when did this where you're on today to talk about the culture business? When did this thing start shifting and what happened there? So it, and then we'll move into the, your, yeah, your new they life. They started shifting at Unilever and Unilever brought me in. Knowing I'd, I was coming from the arts world, and they said, "Look, we've we've got a couple of challenges here. We've got two businesses, two parts of Unilever coming together. Uh, one's the personal care side, one's the the um, home care side, uh, and they've each got their own culture. But we don't want one culture stronger than the other. We want a third culture. Is this something that you can help with? Second issue is we're a really creative company i mean we are the second largest advertiser in the uk after the british government which means we're the second biggest storyteller in this country yeah Uh, Uh but we don't have enough of these creative skills can you help us and by the way we think we're losing our creative mojo a little bit now the way i'm describing it today is not as clear-cut as it was back in 1999 
um, when I started. But that was the essence of the brief. Can you create a fresh culture for us? And can you make us more creative? So, and, and this was the beginning of this extraordinary project, which really I, I learned everything, uh, or everything came together, I think that's fair to say. And it was called Catalyst. And there, there were a number of stipulations. They said, you're not an outsider, you're inside. So you're on the payroll, you'll work within the human resources department, because that way you'll have greater influence across the whole business. We want it to right. be open to everyone not just the the obvious choices like marketing, for instance. We've got sales, we've got finance, we've got IT, all these kind of people want, should, and must get involved. And they gave me complete free reign. A tiny budget, but free reign. Ah. And I've got this quite interesting mantra from that time. And I remember writing it down. It's on the front of various pieces of you know, publication that we did at the time, which was, I didn't know what I couldn't do. I didn't uh, know what I couldn't wow. do. In other words, I walked into Unilever Gate, I can do anything. I've got no, nothing holding me back. I've got this amazing brief and I have no fear and I've got no barriers as far as I'm aware. So just go uh. for it. It's a very and liberating. It was the most freeing yeah. thing. And of course, now I look back as a leader and a manager and go, if I can give anyone who works with me or for me or alongside me that kind of freedom, that's amazing. And of course, when you don't get it from a client or whatever, you really feel it and you try and yeah. say, come on, open up, let go, give people freedom, trust them. And that's what happened. And at, at Unilever, so I, I did seven years there in establishing this program. And what it actually meant, now let me give you a tangible example. So we brought in a poet. And this poet or poets worked a lot with many of the brands initially um, around how do I write more succinctly? Now, we all know how important that is. You're writing a press release. You're writing, yeah. you've got 50 words on the back of a pack of, you know, some dove hand cream or whatever it is, you've got to crunch it down. So who's who learns how to distill language down to its essence better than a poet? No one. No one does it. Mm -hmm. So we brought in a, a variety of poets, and, and the principle was always, look, you're always going to have agencies out there who will do pack design and copy and all that kind of stuff. But you, as the client, as the business... You have to be up on your game. You have to know how language works. You have to know how to read a photograph and know whether that photograph is as good as another one. So you've got to be able to push your agencies harder. You've got to brief them better yeah. and critique them better. So at that point, in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was the digital world was beginning to emerge. So, of course, people were looking at films more than page ads. But it was still, is this photograph the best photograph or could it be better? How can we push our agencies? So, for instance, poets were brilliant at teaching people the essence of how to crunch and distill language. We brought in photographers to teach people how to look 
to look at great works of art, to look at modern photographs, to look at a Richard Avenden photograph for Chanel in the 1950s and go, why is that photograph so incredible? And so we taught them these creative skills. We brought in art historians and we also brought in perfumers, for instance, because Unilever, huge business in the personal care and indeed in the home care business of fragrancing stuff. So, of course, they spend millions of pounds on fragrance and flavours for their foods. So actually really getting under the skin of what a a flavorist or a perfumer does was incredibly important to them rather than we'll leave that up to our um, our, R&D guys. So at, at, at this about seven-year point, you say, wow, this is working well. I'm going to go. Exactly. You, you, when you left on your own and said, let's just, it was, fun. It was a good run here at Unilever, but I'm going to go launch into helping others beyond Unilever. How, yeah, when did that happen? Yeah, and that happened and, in and 2006, the... and you're absolutely right, Tom, because what happened was that I felt after about year five, year six, I was doing the same things with some of the same groups, <laughs> but some new faces, some of the same brands. And I thought, I could get stuck here. It's a bit comfortable. Your phone is so, in, yeah. So um, yeah. with someone from Unilever, uh, an amazing guy called uh, Ollie Lloyd, we set up our own business and immediately sold ourselves back into Unilever, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> Why not? And we had, uh, you know, blessed them. I'll give them great credit. They they said, yeah, come on, come from the outside, do some big events for us, which is what we did. And then, you know, just gradually the word spread and... We started doing amazing things. Um, We started helping, for instance, I mean, I still scratch my head at this, the Royal Society of Chemistry. Fine. What do I know? You know, I was asked to give up chemistry at sort of 15 because I was going to embarrass the school (laughs) with my result. But so we somehow get a link into them and they're going, you know, where is chemistry going? We need to have some big conversations about the importance of chemistry, because it's sort of falling out of schools, it's falling out of love. And yet, on the other side, chemistry and, uh, you know, the whole police and the blood work and all this kind of stuff is suddenly getting really cool over there. But so Fair. so where are we going as, a, as an industry, as a whole division? So we set up a whole series of massive conversations and they said, we'll just connect you into a few Nobel Prize winners. They'll fly across from Italy for the day. You know, suddenly we had these amazing people. That's so cool. Who just won, you know, this and Nobel Prize from 20, you know, 10. And, and they were part of these big conversations about society, about policing, about safety, about education, when we staged eight huge conversations for them. And, and that's where we suddenly thought this thing called culture and identity it can go almost any way and some people are just trying to figure out who they are some people are much more further down the line and sophisticated and therefore trying to deal with this thing called culture which is you know what i'm now spending my time at well and before we jump forward like because now it's you're it's almost like you're ahead of the game i mean it's probably a harder sell into many companies as you kind of indicated culture you know they say i gotta get sales bottom line but 
is there with is there a method to to go beyond Unilever in the early days that allowed you to get through? Is it just a struggle to get people to listen that this is important? I mean, we'll talk about it in a moment how it's critical yeah. now, but they didn't recognize it. No, back then, and, and correct? it's such a good point, Todd, because I think when I look back to those that Unilever job back in 1999 when I joined, they were looking at two different cultures and they wanted to create a third culture. As I said at the time, that's not quite how they explained it. They, uh, you know, they <laughs> had some very interesting challenges between the two sides of the business. Um, one of which was they were all working in the same building, that the, but their pass cards didn't allow each one into the other's floors, so they segregated oh themselves. So we would call that, you know, siloing today uh which you know we all want to chase out of the room until i started talking to you more i would say that culture for a startup meant where i had many of it were for like hey todd let's just get a foosball yeah. at a table and and play stuff around and kind of build the fun and go out for drinks they just didn't get it it was a much uh softer kind of fluffier sound to it but as you as you we found particularly in the last several years and, and what we're going through now it's taken on a whole new meaning that it's like you, I think you said in the past that red is no longer a soul, soft skill that you develop. It's more about, you know, it's critical to the strategy and implementing the success of a company. I have, and a, things like I have that. a question. Like, yeah. At the risk of, risk of sounding completely idiotic, like what, what, how would you define it? Because we okay. like, I don't really know what it is. Do you know what I okay. mean? I mean, I kind of have yeah. a vague idea. Is it a vibe? Is it sort of like an ethos? Um, I think the way that we describe it is that very simply the top line is that almost every business organization, could be a school, could be a church, it could be a theater company, has a purpose. Why are we doing what we're doing? Mm -hmm. We're here to entertain the masses. We're here to bring Shakespeare to a new audience, whatever it is. That's our why. Mm -hmm. The strategy is always our what. So what are we doing? Well, this year we're doing a bunch of plays or this year, you know, we're, we're still making shoes um, and we send them out to developing nations as well. Culture is how you do that. So you've got your why, you've got your what, but then how are we going to go about it? Are we going to be chaotic and live by the seat of our pants or are we going to be professional, buttoned down, and we know how it's going to work, or somewhere, some variation in between. People talk about culture as being, lots of different metaphors here, like or similars. It's it's like the mortar between bricks that hold up a wall. So it's the bricks you look at, uh -huh. but it's the culture that's doing the work. It's the mortar that's doing the work. And it's the accumulation, Tony, really, of just Every day, lots and lots of small activities by everyone, i.e. how we meet, how we greet each other, how we celebrate, how I challenge you in a meeting. Maybe I listen, maybe I don't listen. How I welcome you, how I, am I present when you're in the room or am I on my phone? <laughs> how we think together, how we make decisions, one's attitude and mindsets. Do we greet the receptionist? Do we ignore them? All those tiny little things, those those minute behaviours set the tone for how this place is. And when, no. you know, in fact, all of our families and our family units have a certain culture. 
whether it's if you look back to your childhood and that thing or your current family now, when you think about the schools you've been to and the universities and colleges you may or the drama academies you may have been to, they will have had a culture and you could probably pick out three or four words that denote quite how they did what they did. What what have you seen a change over, let's say, the last 10 to 15 years, even 20 years, uh, on the the biggest changes you've seen within the companies? Well, it's taken seriously. It's recognized and it's taken seriously. Many businesses have culture officers uh, or directors of culture or of of programs. Um, And all the evidence is, of course, now coming through. I mean, I... It's so interesting. I remember my dad, you know, being this doctor at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, and he had an instinct, which was, I think it would be really good to have pictures on the walls of every ward, yeah. every department in this hospital, because my belief, he goes, is that people will get better faster. And, you know, if they've got something rather than a blank wall, they've got something to look at. And it could be reproductions of great masters, could be colourful abstracts, doesn't matter. So fast forward 50 years, of course, we now have all the evidence that that is the case. And he was one of the forerunners of that. And I think, I'm not in any way claiming to be as, you know, great as he, but this idea of the importance of culture is now coming through. I mean, Todd, I think you and I... You actually maybe uh, came across the new, was it the Washington Post or New York? Wall Street Journal. Yeah, Journal. about Wall Street Journal, about the importance of culture. And and we we now have the statistics that say it's the second most important reason why someone will or won't join a particular business. Number one is pay. That's fine. But number two is the culture. How do you go about your daily tasks? What's the kind of vibe of this group, of this team, of this meeting. Now, if you're working in a very fast-moving, exciting startup with three people, uh, you know, or 23 people, there's a certain kind of culture to that. With Unilever, which has 140,000 people worldwide, it's got to be completely different. It's got to have some structure Uh around it. And immediately you can you can see differences. You might have had a, a kid who's been at a school and you've moved them to a new school and you could immediately feel the difference. And as we say, mm-hmm. culture is, is always leader-led and then it's people-driven. Now, if it's in a school, that's teacher-driven and pupil-driven. But the third aspect of it is it's, it's what we call manager-powered. So leader-led, people-driven, but manager-powered, i.e. the people in the middle. Let's take a business. Middle managers, they're the people who have the most uh, colleagues reporting into them. So they have huge direct influence as to how a culture is, or interestingly, isn't lived. And one thing. Oh God, sorry. No. Well, one thing I was—I think one of the biggest challenges that I've seen in the in the in this field, and you—I'd love to hear your view on it for the listeners—is that I think the old guard it's kind of hard to bring them over, and that's the biggest challenge. I think as we get farther and farther along, and the newer people expect it, as the Wall Street Journal said, 
the old guard are still holding on to, no, 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 we're just here to work hard. Yeah. So that that is a challenge to make that transition uh, from the, the old leaders. And in if some you will. ways, I would suggest that this is where the pandemic has played its part. To, uh, it, let's call it a, in a positive way, because I think what's happened in the last two to three years is that we ha we have reframed how we view work yeah, across definitely. every level and strata of society. Um, obviously, we're going to be working in different ways, hybrid, flexible working. That's absolutely here to stay. It's never going to change that there'll be ebbs and flows. But the positioning of work in our lives. So those voices, I think, who say, nope, we're here to do, that's what you do. You do an honest day's work. You do five days of those, and then we give you a couple of days off. I, I think they're they're beginning to become distant voices. Mm -hmm. And as part of that change, the big thing that I've seen happening, particularly in the last two years, is the rise of this challenge. And it is a challenge. And I'm not sure that any of us have the precise uh, solution, but boy, it's keeping me awake at night, is this idea of belonging. You know, it's yep. one of the most fundamental, if you look at Haslow's hierarchy of needs, it's right there, almost at the bottom of the pyramid. We all want to belong somewhere. But if we're all working in our spare bedrooms or kitchens um, and we never meet, we're just on screen in this transactional way, how do we do it? And for these managers or leaders, this is a huge challenge. <laughs> but some people are beginning to tackle it in, in, I think, really interesting ways. They're changing the way that they communicate. They're talking much more openly, honestly, regularly about how they're feeling about that idea of, you know, uncertainty, the unknown. Let's walk through this together because I'm not quite sure what the next few months are going to look like. And people believe that rather than a sort of bluster of everything's going to be okay, trust me, chaps, we'll go over the top. You know, people are going, nah, don't want to do that. I don't believe you. In a way, in a way there's a less of a separation between your personal and professional life because you're bringing it to the office more and you're allowed to to share it. I mean, in the past, no matter what's going on, you're there to work. And there's kind of the barriers are, which can be a little tricky, but the barriers are coming down a little bit, they uh, are. I think, to be more open. And I open. think it, you say it, it's a little tricky. It might be tricky for, for let us say, and I, I might include myself in this, you know, that older generation of leaders. Yeah. But for the younger generation, I think this idea is not so much dropping barriers. It's just going, I, I want to be myself. Uh, at home and at work, and there is no difference. Right. Every time I I coach people, I uh, you know we always start around values. What are your values? What do you stand for? What do you care about? What truly matters to you? And that, if you can get clear on those two three things that really matter to you, they will run through every aspect of your life. And great leaders lead through their values. That's who they are as people. Um, and so if you can get clear on that, uh, then there will be no distinction. Uh, and you, you, you are that true, authentic self that people can see. 
Well, I think what the great the crossover is for the listeners is not just about business; it's a personal, whether it's your coaching, oh, yeah. all these things you you talk about apply to their personal lives, so they can use these this model, if you will, to help them and, personally. And do you know what? Um, Todd, that's such a good point because back to the Unilever work, we'd bring in this poet; they'd help people write, and we'd go, "Look, this is for you. You know, you're going to learn how to write. You know, either as a poet or however you want to write, but certainly with greater." Right you know, essence and, and distillness to it, to your writing, you can take that anywhere. You can take it home. You can teach it to your kids. And of course, we expect you to bring it into work. So many of the creative skills, how to look at an image, for instance, again, you could take that anywhere. You can use it anywhere. And and that's why you mentioned it um, earlier about soft skills. I get very fidgety where people talk about soft skills and and often it, it's slightly derogatory uh, but I feel it's very old language uh, particularly yep. in the field of culture because a lot of these in inverted commas soft skills like communication uh, team building time management emotional intelligence these are incredibly hard to get right Yep. So, you know, yeah. for uh, I don't think there's any th such thing as soft skills uh, any longer. I think it's all hard. All this stuff is hard. Yes, legal knowledge, that's a hard skill. Medical knowledge, yep. Right. How to put right. a motorcycle you know, back together after you've, you know, yeah. it's all good technical skills. But the soft skills, as they used to be known, we now appreciate how hard they are to get right. Well, can I, I have a question for Alistair. So just going back to when you accepted the challenge from Unilever, um, just basically, how did you know how to go about this? Is you, I know you said that you were felt liberated because you didn't know what you didn't know, but, um, but like, I mean, did you just kind of learn as you went? Or The first thing I, I remember doing uh, on almost kind of day one was um, I went up and saw the head of Dove, one of the big brands, biggest right. brands, a guy called yes. Steve Miles. And someone had said Steve's a, a concert pianist. He adores playing the piano. He's a phenomenal pianist. So you and he will have something in common. And I remember sitting down almost day one and going, chatting, and I said, I've got this open brief. And, and, and the more that we talked, the more he goes, this is interesting because... It's not top of my agenda, but there is something going on for me about language and about how we could get better at writing better language. And it's mostly the, I, I'm thinking about the emails and the uh, the stuff we, we, we might read for um, for internal newsletters and stuff like that. And he gave me a little challenge. What can you do for my team? Because I'd be willing you know, to give you a day with them. And they want some kind of writing skills. So, and it went, it literally went from there. <laughs> and then someone else would come up, uh, you know, in conversation with a challenge. Again, um, I think it was, which brand was it? It was, it was one of the brands that was uh, really interested in the, in the visualness of, of <laughs> things. So we went on to that. Then we did a big piece of work. And this was a great learning experience because... It became clear to me after about two, three years, so I'm fast-forwarding a bit, that the values mm. that Unilever said 
you know, it held to, were not really being lived on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And I remember commissioning some artists to do, and some researchers to do, to, to speak to everyone in the building and go, who do you think, who are the top five people who you think live these values, the stated values of the business, to the best? And everyone, to a person, sort of put, number one, my boss. Number two, <laughs> the person who sits in the chair next to me. Yeah, of course. And then, you know, three was... But then four and five were really interesting, you know, because they sort of looked further afield. And we published the results of this survey and we made a poster and we put the poster up on every single wall. And within about two hours... By the way, very few members of the Unilever UK board were on that list. Of 450 people. Wow. Some people did appear, but like number 30. And uh, uh, no names. And and within about two hours, I was hauled into my boss's office, the head of HR, and he said, you have to take this poster down. Uh, It's causing huge problems. And um, I said, really? Are you sure? It's a very honest thing. He said, no, no, no. He said, "The, the, the key thing is that external people coming in to see, for instance... You know, a major person in the supply chain goes, oh, this is an interesting poster, reads the poster, sees that their name isn't on the list or received zero scores, and they go, am I actually seeing the right person? Well, wow. I, I kind of, it, it took me about two days because I dragged my feet to take it down. <laughs> but it, so it's a bit naughty. But the <laughs> point was made and what was uh, and that's i think a really good example of i didn't know what i couldn't do i mean if you yeah. just sat back and thought about it you go alistair don't do this you'll get booted out i mean this right. is this is just but what what was so beautiful about that e- example was it i'd say about 3 months later the chairman of unilever uk went i think we need to do some work around our values yeah. I think it's time to look at them again, time to to, to refresh them uh, and start living them. So, it, you know, it, it's a bit like when you tell a child off, they're not immediately going to sit up straight or clean their room or do whatever mm-hmm. it is. You need to give them a bit of space. And right. then if it's landed, they'll clean their room, they'll sit up, they'll, you know, do a, brush their teeth or whatever it is. And I think that was a little bit like Unilever. It just needed its own space. Mm-hmm. And then it came roaring back and did an amazing piece of work um, led by the then chairman around what are our values <laughs> and are we all living them? What keeps you going? Why do you keep doing this? And what is, and, uh, to add on to that, is like what's different about when you started versus now and what does the future hold for the Creamer and Co. And, and Alistair? Okay, so what keeps me going? Yeah, what keeps me going is that this is a rapidly changing world and it's a little bit like a sunrise. We've all, you know, you can see the dawn coming and for 20 plus years or whatever, you know something's happening around culture. But now the sun has broken the horizon and it's shining in our eyes. And this is a a world, uh, an area deep in meaning and, uh, you know, people, for instance, after the, through the pandemic, are, are searching for more meaningful work mm-hmm. in the time that they do it. And, and the culture of your organization, your team, will be part of the answer in bringing, you know, how you do what you do with greater meaning. So I think 
culture, what keeps me going is that this is the moment for culture. And I think the vast majority of people get it. There'll be one or two that, that choose not to, but I think all the evidence is there. So that's what keeps me going. The changes, um, I think that people are willing to be more vulnerable and more um, act with more humility, uh-huh. which means we might not have got it right. Um, we're going to change tack. We're going to do something a bit differently rather than going, this is the way we do it, this is the way we've always done it, and we're going to continue to do that. There are still some places like that and, and leaders like that, but actually we, we've come through, we've all had to change in the last two and a half years. We've adapted our worlds, our lives, our family units, how we educate, how we learn, how we work. So we've proven to ourselves that we can change. And that's very significant. Yeah. Because culture and the ways of working are all about being open to change. And that's what I think the big difference is. I think we've shown ourselves that we can do things differently. Now let's spread further afield beyond our ways of working in the pandemic to go, what else could I change? I think there's a sort of feeling, a collective feeling now, which is, I've got to do something a bit more with my life. People have to understand that it, it's not this corporate thing. It's it's very personal because every time you ask someone to slightly change or tweak or, you know, you might be, I want my business to be much more entrepreneurial. So you're saying to your people, be entrepreneurial yeah. <laughs> and uh, be more entrepreneurial. And in that instance, you've got to take people with you. So people have got to think firstly, well, what's in it for me? to be more entrepreneurial. Help me find a connection with my wider life that why it's important. Well, maybe it's important for me because actually I'd love my kids right. to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. So if I'm entrepreneurial and I role model that at home and I do certain things, some of which I might have picked up at work, that's good. Yeah. So that's cool. So I can see that the business is helping me in that way. And I can see the value to myself. And then I need a little bit of courage just to take those first steps, whether it's at work or it's at home. And off you go and you're on the journey. Absolutely. You're on the journey. But all culture and particularly all cultural transition and change is really personal transition and change. I think that's a nice way to wrap it up. That's amazing. Unless you have any last thoughts for our listeners. That's, uh, you covered a lot. Well, I suppose one of the things, just to come back to my creative sort of beginnings, if you like, I think the other thing that I've really learned, and I suppose it's true of music as it is of theatre uh, or, or any of the other arts, is that I think this is an age in which if we could do one thing, it would be this, to be more present uh, for each other. Yes. And when you're playing... When you're in a theatre piece or you're doing voiceover or you're in a rock band or you're whatever, you have to be present. You have to be in the moment. 
And it's so interesting because our minds cascade all over the place. They flip backwards in memory. They jump into the future with imagination. But our bodies are always in the present. Always mm. in the present. And if we can bring our minds a little bit closer to our bodies, and it's all about being present for other people, paying attention, noticing more, and observing what others are doing and saying. And I, I, I honestly think that tying that back into culture, it's one of the secrets of culture. I think it's one of the secrets of great leaders. People used to say about Nelson Mandela, five minutes in his company felt like half an hour because he was just focused on you. Yeah. And, and I think when you truly focus in this age of great distraction, completely on the other person, something rather magical happens. Yeah. They start revealing themselves, actually, is what happens. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gray Matters Podcast. Please rate and review and be sure to tell your friends, too. For more information about Creamer and Milliken, go to creamerandmilliken.com. And for more information about this podcast, go to thegraymatters.org. And please subscribe to The Gray Matters wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank my guest, Alistair Creamer, my co-host, Tony Hoyland, and a special thanks to you, the listener. I'm Todd Harrington. Until next time. <laughs>